podcast this week, we're visited by the ghost of podcasts past as our former spirit animal Dan Stevens drops by to talk about the man who invented Christmas. Plus all the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that thinks it's got the black lung pop. (coughs) 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 That became genuine there. Uh, Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, hauling myself out of my sick bed. Deathbed, some might say, to bring you this week's Empire podcast. And perhaps because they've been scared off for fear of contracting my lurgy, I've been deserted by my colleagues of such lethal cunning this week. In fact, there's only one of them. And I hesitate to call him a colleague of lethal cunning. Uh, <laughs> it rhymes with cunning. Uh, the soul brave enough to face up to sharing my airspace is James Dyer. How are you? Hello. I'm a bit disappointed, to be honest with you. Why? Well, I had Helen banished out of the country, and I've been steadily poisoning <laughs> you for the past three weeks in a bit of a kind of subtle coup to take over the podcast, and yet here you are, alive and kicking. Why don't you just either push me out of a window or, or you know, kill me when I'm on the toilet? Oh. Or, you know, one of the many uh, means of, of death that have occurred on the hit HBO show Game of Thrones. It's I true. believe that's how it's pronounced. That is indeed how it's pronounced. Uh, I should have looked at that for inspiration. You should have done. Uh, I would have thrown you to a bear had I had the option. <laughs> All right, okay. So, well, it's good to have you here. It's good to have you braving the uh, the uh, the airspace. It's good. It's been a while since we've had one of these little intimate one-to-one chats. It is, isn't it? Mm. It's been good. How, how have you been? I have I've not been, been too I've bad. literally been off all week, so yeah. I don't know what's been going on in the office. What's, what's happened? Oh, what has been happening? We've been putting up a lot of Star Wars news this week. So uh, I've been mining the brand new issue, which we shall talk about later, for uh, pictures and things, what I wrote in it. I'm putting them up on the website. Um, I have been catching up on the many things I have missed. I watched. I finished watching Mindhunter this week, which I've been a bit behind on, um, and we will be discussing a bit later that season two has been announced in news. That's exciting. It's very good. I liked it a lot. So you've just uh, spoiled the news section as well. Yeah, I've spo- spoiled new- I've spoiled the podcast, let's be honest. All right. Well, the reason I'm, I'm letting you drone on relentlessly is because I'm trying to find <laughs> I'm trying to find the question. Here it is. Here it is. Okay. I couldn't find the question. <laughs> and it, it's a good one. It's a good question. And it comes all the way from, weirdly enough, Malta, which is where I believe Helen is at the moment. That's why she's not here. She's on holiday. Because she needed some Maltesers. <laughs> she did. Mm. She thought that's where they, they, they grew. Yeah, that's where they come from. They grow on trees, don't they? They do. So this comes from Mark Warner. He says, long time learn, uh, long-term listener, first-time emailer. Sorry, wrong film-related podcast. <laughs> All right, okay, steady on. Uh, I was listening to the Lee Child interview in the latest podcast in which the learned child implied that Arthurs are a rare commodity in the modern age, especially Arthurs that run laundrettes. This refers to the bad guy of the new Jack Reacher thriller in which the bad guy is called Arthur Scorpio and he runs a laundrette. Uh, back to the question. Uh, my late grandfather was an Arthur. And furthermore, you guessed it, he ran a laundrette in sunny Southend-on-Sea. What do I win? You win nothing but our gratitude. That's great. That's awesome. Was he called Arthur Scorpio, Mark? I imagine he was called Arthur Warner. It seems more likely. Artie. Artie Warner. Art. Artie Warner, which is, you know, what Chris Nolan makes. Mm, Artie Warner Brothers films. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I feel like death. Uh, <laughs> So back to the question. I would now like to tie this in in an expanded laundrette universe kind of way by asking you a question for your regular opening feature. What are your favourite scenes slash moments in film involving laundrettes? <laughs> or laundry in general? Being in a les affaires mode, uh, this can also involve the byproducts of laundry, including ironing, irons, or putting clothes away. Wow. That's a hell of a question. Uh, to be honest, I didn't really read on past the laundry thing. The, the rest of it's been a bit of, a, a bit of a surprise to me. Have you prepared for this in any way, James? I even though I sent this you this question three days ago. Very thoroughly, uh-huh. as I-, I walked up the steps <laughs> into this building. Okay. Uh, I thought very, very long and very, very hard for the ten seconds that I devoted to this. Yes. Um, I, I didn't. I also didn't realise that we'd branched out into just sort of you know linen in general. Um, laundrette sequences. Really, the first thing that sort of springs to my mind is Uberweiss. It's new. It's German. It's extra tough. You know what I'm talking about? Oh. No, you have no idea. Do you? Uh, the uh, the one with the East German laundry detergent. Uh, it's uh, season one, episode of Friends. Do you not remember when Ross is Ross like, and Rachel? Ross, Ross, Ross is, is trying to court yeah, Rachel. They're in inverted commas first date. They go to the laundrette, and he has his snuggles. Uh, and Joey tells him he can't have that. Season that one. Be. It's season one, yeah. So it's not the first uh, date. 
Uh, well, no, it's the, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not actually a date. They call it their first date. Joey convinces Ross it's their first date. But Rachel doesn't know it's no, first no, date. she doesn't. She just thinks so. It's not the first it. date. Yeah, it's yeah. actually quite creepy if you think. Because I was going to, I was going to call you on your chronology of the Ross Rachel relationship there, because you know it was skew with. No, no, no. It's all good. And uh, he changes for Uberweiss, and that. Oh. Uh, we, and I know why you're eyeing yeah. it because that was the gamer tag of a sadly dearly departed friend of ours yeah. uh, called Pav. And interesting story when Pav first tried to friend me on Xbox as Uberweiss, I yeah. immediately blocked him because I thought he was a white supremacist. <laughs> and he had to text me and goes, "Dude, what are you doing?" And then I. But yeah, Uberweiss. That is a good one. I actually was going to suggest that scene, but I didn't remember it in the detail that you clearly do. <laughs> uh, there's been a couple of really good laundry scenes this year, weirdly enough. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God, because there's pretty much nothing in the history of cinema. Uh, Paddington 2 has a very good laundry scene. Oh, it? Have you not seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. Oh. It will transform your life. Okay, good. Uh, a very good laundry scene where he gets sent to prison and uh, he uh, has to do the laundry and <laughs> wouldn't you know it? He, gets a, he leaves a red sock in the laundry and turns all the prisoners' uniforms pink. Amazing. Uh, it's very funny. And there's also a scene in Baby Driver where uh, Baby and Deborah listen to music yes, in they the share, laundrette. They share events. Yeah, they? and yeah. Edgar Wright plays around with the colours. It's very stylized in the, the colours that are swirling around in the laundrette. Oh, that's good. That's pretty cool. That's a good scene. Didn't uh, Stephen Frears make a film about a laundromat? <laughs> <laughs> my god uh, yes there is my beautiful laundrette mid 80s starring a young Daniel Day-Lewis and there are, there are scenes set within the laundrette in my Which beautiful is laundrette beautiful? Uh, no it's just a normal laundrette yeah. basically but uh, yeah there's also that there's a scene in Fight Club Yes. in a laundrette um, she's stealing the, the washing mm-hmm. mm. um, which is fun and uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Anchorman 2 because I'm the only person on planet Earth who still does. Um, I like that film. Uh, Brick Tanland takes Kristen Wiig's character, the brilliantly named <laughs> Chani Lasname, to, <laughs> to a laundrette on their first date together. And they stand around a fending machine and, and drink Lasname. Lasname. Hang on, isn't. Hang on, I'm having a flashback. No, uh, Wayne's World 2, Garth meets Kim Basinger. Yes! In the laundrette, and she's Honey Hornet. Oh my god! So they totally ripped off that. Anchorman 2 sucks. No, it doesn't. Yes. It doesn't. It has issues, but it's very, very funny. And how many other films do you know that could release an entirely different cut with completely new jokes and still make as much sense as <laughs> the cut it's they released? It's almost as if they improvised every scene and just threw it all together like a sketch show. That's not true, though, because I was on set, and I know for a fact oh. that they have, uh, they have a script that they stick to, but what they do do is they do a lot of alts as well. Mm. Uh, and so you have the, the situation where Adam McKay will be offset and he will be literally on a microphone speaking alternate lines into the microphone over a speaker system for the actors, Will Ferrell and uh, Steve Carell and all that lot, Paul Rudd, to try as they go. Interesting. Yeah. Maybe we should try that for the podcast. Anchorman 2 was very heavily scripted. It's hard to believe. It doesn't I show. know. It was very heavily scripted, uh, but there you go. Right, I think we've I think we've answered. Oh, Iron Man. Uh, there's loads of iron in that, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Although my favourite uh, sheet moment, since we're broadening, is from the original uh, the original It miniseries. Remember when Pennywise is like appearing in between the sheets on the line? Oh yeah, that's really creepy. Well, Michael Myers appears uh, very much. One of his first appearances to Laurie Strode in Halloween is in and around. Uh, washing as well so so there's that uh, if you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast you can do so via a number of methods before I expire uh, you can send them in via Twitter where we're at Empire Magazine please use the hashtag Empire Podcast or chances are we won't see it uh, we're also on Facebook as Empire Magazine or as Mark Warner did all the way from Malta he got in he uh, logged on he sent an email to us at podcast at Empire Online. Okay, so all that nonsense out of the way, it is time to talk about this week's movie news. Uh, There wasn't a huge amount of movie news this week, I would say, because of Thanksgiving, which fell in the States and Hollywood shuts down. There was a little trailer called uh, for a film called Avengers Infinity War. But don't worry, we won't be banging on about it on this podcast, because if you're not already aware, when it came out on Wednesday, Helen popped round... 
uh, and we recorded what we thought was going to be a bit for this week's podcast. We knew Helen wasn't going to be on it. And so we decided to record a little bit to drop into this this segment, have Helen talking about the, the podcast. And then it just kind of ballooned, shall we say, and we put it up as his own special. We spent 34 minutes banging on about the trailer, um, which seems like a lot in hindsight, because the trailer's only two and a half minutes long. But it is just a bit of fun, uh, and if you don't like it when we bang on about Marvel relentlessly on the regular podcast, well, here's all your prayers are answered, because you can go over to this special if you wish, and if you don't, you can pretend it doesn't even exist. So there we go. Which means we're not going to bang on about it here, but James, two words, did you like it? Oh my God, yes. Although, although, oh although, although. Yep. And you probably covered this in the special. I no, was expecting not to, to see more. No, I haven't. Uh, I was expecting to see more of the footage they showed at D23 because some of the best bits didn't make it into the trailer, which surprised me. Planet in the Face, in particular, didn't make the trailer. I assume they're holding that for trailer number two. So we shall see. Lots more, lots more excitement. Yes, I assume they are. But um, I, I also figured that they wouldn't just do the D23 thing. There's a reason why it was... Th- Three months. Anyway, you're making me bang on about it. And I purposely do not want to bang on about it. Anyway, it's out there now. 230 million views, breaking a, a record. Who's counting this sort of stuff? It is the most watched trailer in history, isn't it? When you have all the Avengers cast pressing refresh <laughs> endlessly, and there's about four trillion of them, then yeah. that, that, those sort of numbers tend to result. Uh, so there we go. The Avengers Infinity War trailer, and you can listen to that uh, impromptu special. Uh, if you wish. And so. if you don't want to watch it, just watch the video of John Boyega watching it, and that pretty much sums it up, I think. I haven't seen that. It's pretty entertaining. Oh, I will watch it. He that. enjoyed it. Well, that's my understanding. It seems it seems like he enjoys it. Let's just say that. Okay, good, yeah. good, good, good. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of the stuff that has come out this week, some of the news that has emerged. Uh, there's some interesting Walking Dead news. What was this? I missed this. Did you know, see this? So, so they finally confirmed the character that is going to cross over from The Walking Dead to the other show that is still happening Fear the Walking Dead for, for, for a limited crossover they're migrating they're migrating oh dear so, uh, they're this, being demoted this character is, <laughs> this wow character, this character is leaving the Walking Dead the parent show and going to the lesser spot that no one watches Fear the Walking Dead yeah and that character is Lenny James's Morgan interesting I like Morgan I like Lenny James as well but I think I, Morgan's quite a fun character it's a shame to see him go uh, to a show that really only I watch. Um, <laughs> but it's good. It will be nice. It will be intimate. I will enjoy his performance and no one else will. And that will be... That'll be I'm, I honestly believe. I'm one of the few people in the office who still watch The Walking Dead. I am the only one who ever watched Fear the Walking Dead. They so. are... But they're really revamping the, uh, Fear the Walking Dead, aren't they? They've added a whole bunch of new cast members for season four. They've got a new showrunner coming in. Jenna Elfman has joined the cast. Maggie Grace has joined the cast. So they're they're trying to clear it up. Uh, and by bringing in Lenny James, obviously they're going, you like this guy in this show. But of course, Fear the Walking Dead is still a prequel, isn't it? Or are they going to accelerate the timelines? Um, is Morgan going to basically transition alive from one show to the other? Or is he going to cark it on The Walking Dead and then pop up? Is this going to explain where he was for all those years we didn't see him? But in, I in don't know that it is a prequel anymore because it starts off you see the outbreak. That all happens very quickly. And there have been a number of periods where they've been doing things and in places for... Like, they were, in a, uh, like they were on a ranch for most of the, the current season for quite a considerable amount of time. I don't know exactly how long it's supposed to be, but I would happily think it was months. And yet I don't know where we are in The Walking Dead. I don't know how much time has passed since, you know, the fall of Atlanta to where they are now. So, yeah. I don't know. It might not be a prequel. They might just fudge it. Okay, know. that's interesting. But Breathing a bit new life into that show is, no, is good. I'm glad I was able yeah. to eliminate you there. Thank you. And, and you a bit of news. What, what have you got? Well, as we already mentioned, Mindhunter's getting a second season. That is exciting. It was never really in doubt, I don't think. Netflix don't reveal their figures, but it was very well reviewed. It was very popular. It was David Finch's involved in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, really good show. I enjoyed it enormously. I can't really talk about it in any detail because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but it's uh, it's really good. It's about the foundation of the FBI's behavioural science unit and them sort of formulating the criminal mind, if you will, Chris. It's hot in it. He is. It's, it was surprising to me too. Hashtag but- <laughs> no hotch, no watch. God. Uh, yes, it is in fact the show based entirely on Criminal Minds. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's good. It's good. I recommend everyone watch it. It's only 10 episodes, um, but it's, it feels more like a, this is laying the groundwork for, uh, for, a, second, for a second season. Like this, okay. is, this is sort of, it, the characters go through quite a large sort of 
arc in terms of where they are. They're establishing of this scientific method for profiling serial killers. They're kind of trying it out. And you feel by the end of it, they're kind of in the place where we now know the FBI is, where they can see into people's pathology. It's very good. It's exciting. Yes, it is. But nowhere near as exciting as what I think we can all agree was the biggest news of, dare I say it, our lifetimes. News that Aaron Sorkin may, may, yes, may, (laughs) may return the West Wing to us. I mean, let's be honest, I don't imagine this will happen because, you know, the universe doesn't love me that much. But uh, so essentially what happened was a Hollywood reporter, I believe it was, did an interview with Aaron Sorkin. Uh, and he talked a little bit about... Well, he's talking about Molly's Game, obviously, his directorial debut. But he mentioned to them that if he was to bring back the West Wing, he wouldn't tackle Trump because, and I quote, Trump is exactly what he looks like, a really dumb guy with an observable psychiatric disorder. <laughs> Which I thought summed it up nicely. Uh, but what he said he would do is he said he'd cast Sterling K. Brown as the president. And there's some kind of jam, an emergency, a very delicate situation involving the threat of war or something, and President Bartlett long since retired, is consulted in the way that Bill Clinton used to, be consult, uh, used to consult with, uh, with Nixon. Uh, but he hasn't worked out how he'd work in the other members of the wider ensemble into it. So this was just a throwaway thing in the interview, but it got picked up online. And then uh, Sterling Brown tweeted, hashtag Aaron Sorkin, if you are serious, sir, I would be honoured. Aaron Sorkin, of course, isn't a man who does anything in a 280, let alone 140 <laughs> characters. Uh, he dropped Josh Molina a line. Yes. So Josh Molina tweeted, I Josh awoke- Molina? Josh Molina is oh, he's a star of Scandal at the moment, but he was he played Will Bailey on The West Wing. Josh Molina is the guy with glasses. He, yeah, exactly. He's, he's, the, he's the district attorney. He's the, 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 uh, not district attorney. What's the word I'm looking for? Attorney general. He's the attorney okay. general. Is it wrong that I've scandal. seen more episodes of Scandal than I have the West Wing? It's so wrong, I can't even begin to tell you. <laughs> uh, Josh Molina, who also does the West Wing Weekly podcast with Rishi Keshawe, which is the second best podcast in the world. After, after Wittertainment. After Wittertainment, yes. After Football Weekly. Yes. After The Cine Mile. And that as well. Okay. Now, Josh Molina said the following, I awoke to a request from Aaron, who does not tweet, asking me to pass along the following response. Dead serious, and I'm honoured by your interest. Now, an idea... I'm going to need one of those. Yes, so he wants to be able to bring in uh, Bradley Whitford, Alison Janney, you know, everyone else, Richard Schiff, uh, the sort of broader cast. But yeah. that's a lot of retired people to crowbar into. Monty the, the Dancing Clown, he's got to come back. Yes, yes, indeed. Famous um, episode in season five. You're a terrible human being. This genuinely would make my life, so I'd be very, very excited by this. Would it make um, your life? It, it, it might, yeah. What does it say about your life? It, it, not a lot. But I'm, I'm re-watching The West Wing again for the umpteen billionth time. Yeah. And I love every minute of it. I was watching it last night. Um, it, is, <laughs> it is my eternal companion. Uh, and I'm, just, I'm just all for shows coming back. I'm all for shows re-exploring uh, characters 10, 15, 20 years down the line. I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah, I'm always fascinated with that sort of stuff. I read an interview this week with one of the co-creators of Frasier. I think it was on The Guardian. Because I don't know if you're aware of this thing. It's called The Frasier Verse. So uh, this the guy... The FCU. Yeah. This guy, there's some guy in the States uh, who has been a massive, massive fan of Frasier. And he's like a message board con- contributor. And over the years, and I think this was going on even when Frasier was, was going, he would write... Um, he would come up with entirely new seasons and, and shows... So that were spin-offs for Frasier and he would write episode synopses uh, hundreds of them on these message boards on Frasier message boards like literally entirely new spin-offs so like there's a Roz spin-off and then there's a, a spin-off much much later years later when Roz has died and her husband Bulldog Briscoe because somehow they've got together when Roz is promoted to the head of the Seattle radio station so they, they marry and then Bulldog and Noel, you remember Noel from Frasier, they go into retirement home together and it's all about death. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. There's a, there's a spin-off about Maris in which Maris never appears, but that runs for seven seasons in the Frasier first. And each episode is insanely detailed. Go and check this article out. It's really, really great. And they got one of the co-creators of Frasier to talk about it. And in the course of that interview, he says, you know, I wouldn't be a first to bring in Frasier back, and I don't think Kelsey would be either. Uh, and, you know, because certainly other shows are coming back. Twenty Four, The X Files. I think ER is coming back. Is it? Uh, yeah, in some sort of in some capacity. Well, we've had Roseanne, Gilmore Girls. Roseanne's Will coming Grace, back. Yeah, know. Will and Grace is uh, the is yeah. big one. Uh, I remember they 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 dangled the carrot of Law and Order in front of me a couple of years ago. Ten ten. Oh, 
with 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 Jack McCoy coming back, with Sam Waterston as Jack McCoy coming back. And and then they snatched it away from me at the last minute. The reason, by the way, that I stared at you blankly while you talked to me, what what happened just now is you spoke and I heard the teacher from The Simpsons talking uh, in that kind of... Not The Simpsons, I heard the teacher from uh, Peanuts talking, you know, okay. like, wah, 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 wah. That happens a lot I have talking. never seen a single episode of Frasier, so I have no idea who any of the people you Oh, my God! Are. I've seen every single episode of Cheers, not a single episode of Frasier. I know, it's weird, I've, isn't it? I have known you for... Let's be honest, too long. <laughs> I like to think we're pretty good friends. We know each other pretty well. But now I'm questioning what yeah. I ever knew about you. You didn't. That's my secret shame. Well, it's one of my many secret shames, but that's, uh, that's, that's a big one. I know that you're an enemy of comedy. I am. And that's partly the reason why I never watched it. But then I did watch all of Cheers retroactively, because clearly I didn't watch it. In when why I did you there. watch all of Cheers? <sighs> you ask an excellent question. Did you enjoy it? Did it you is, enjoy yeah, Cheers? But I mean, I was. 16 at the time when right. I watched them all. Um, Did you enjoy Frasier, the character, in Cheers? Not massively. I right. thought he was fine, but he's no norm, let's be honest. Man of your sensibilities and your mindset, Frasier is a much more sophisticated, urbane comedy, and mm. I think it would appeal to you and your mindset a little bit more than Cheers. I wonder whether I associate him with latter-day Cheers, and that's the problem. Because it's like, he's not early Diane Cheers, he's later Ali Sheedy Cheers. Well, no, Ali, uh, season uh, three. Uh, um, Trusty Ali season Cheers, three. sorry. Uh, is he, it's season three? Mm-hmm. Is he? Yeah. I don't remember. And how much? It's about what, seven or eight or so? Eleven. Eleven? Mm-hmm. I watched 11 Cheers seasons. Cheers ran for 11 years. Oh Frasier ran for 11 God. years. I want some of my life back. That's terrible. <laughs> All right. Should we talk about some actual movie news? Yeah. So, uh, because we haven't done that yet. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know if it classes as news, but James Cameron has admitted that he may not release five Avatar films. This is interesting to me. So this is an interview he did with Vanity Fair for the re-release of Titanic, which mm. is re-released again Yes, uh, in American cinemas, I believe. Not sure, and definitely not over here. He's re-releasing Avatar in HDR before the sequels come out. I don't know if this is on the internet anyway. He told this to me when I interviewed him uh, earlier this year, and crack journalist that I am, I forgot to write it up or mention it to anyone. Oh my God. Uh, but yeah, he's releasing it in, in 4K and HDR, and he said that the HDR in particular makes a massive difference to it. But, uh, so presumably he's done something similar with Titanic. Speak to me as you would a small child or a dog and <laughs> and pretend that I don't know what HDR... In fact, any of our, our learned listeners do not know what HDR is. High dynamic range lighting. Okay. Uh, if you have a TV that supports it, uh, it gives you much uh, much bigger contrast between the dark blacks and the bright whites and it gives you a lot more depth of the colour. It's a much more faithful reproduction of, uh, of well, colour. Uh, it makes for a better picture, put it that way. Okay. Yeah. Will it, so it, will it be blurry on my TV if I watch football? Uh, I don't think they do a lot of football in HDR. Here's an interesting thing Should he do. told me as well when I spoke to him. He yeah. he said there are sequences in Avatar that aren't in 3D. Uh, he said there are a few bits where it's just 2D. And uh, he said people, when they were doing posts, were stressing about this, you know, because he said there were certain sections where the 3D genuinely made you feel a bit vertiginous. You know, it just didn't work at all. And uh, people worrying what to do about it. Apparently he came in and went, yeah, just make it 2D. And they kind of looked at him and he said, no one will notice. And he said, no one ever has. He said, because the brain connects the dots for you. It just, because it's been so used to seeing things in three dimensions, even when a section is 2D, your brain kind of compensates for it and you don't notice. I do not know which these bits are, but next time you watch Avatar in 3D, <laughs> take a look, see if you can spot the flat bits. All right. But he has said in this interview, he has said that uh, three, four, four, four or five are not a done deal. That he's shooting two and three together right now. Is he shooting four and five? But he may not edit four and five. It I all think depends that's on it. the. Yeah. It all depends on the um, on the reception. Yeah, so I think he'll, they'll do three. the shooting for it, but presumably they won't do the editing. Or I imagine a lot of the post and the effects work on them. Because yeah. I mean, it's, it's only common sense, isn't it? That if the first two don't make a shit ton of money, then mm. you know you want to think very. I bet. Let's be honest. I think there's very very little chance, almost no chance, that they will match the box office turnover of. Avatar, because that was an event. It was a cinematic event, and most of its money came from repeat viewing, and I think that was that was 3D's resurgence. I don't think this will match that no matter how good it is, but I think it's a James Cameron film. It's going to make money. It's People are going to see it. It's going to be good. So I think there's very little chance of, of it not making enough to justify, you know, finishing up the other films. We shall see. Yeah. We shall see. We shall see. What else has happened? Um, oh, um... What well, else has happened? I mean, well, I put out some Star Wars pictures. That was great. Go and have a look at those. It's great. Well, we'll talk about that in a we'll second. Talk about Star Wars uh, in a we'll talk about that in a second. Um, uh, so, Disney founder, their Mulan, 
Yes, they have. And their Mulan is a Chinese actress uh, called uh, Lu Yifei, uh, also known as Crystal Lu. What's she been in? Well, James, I'm glad you asked. Uh, she was in The Forbidden Kingdom with Jackie mm-hmm. Chan and Jet Li, 2008. She was in a film called Outcast with Nick Cage and Hayden Christensen as a double whammy in 2014. I imagine she's mostly known for her work in China, uh, where apparently she's nicknamed Fairy Sister by the Chinese public and is known for her work in a number of TV dramas. So that's all very, very cool. Studio uh, apparently searched through five (coughs) continents to find uh, an actress to play Mulan. And I think Disney were very, very aware of criticisms of whitewashing. Mm -hmm. uh, And they were very, very clear that they wanted to find a Chinese actress to play Mulan, which, of course, is based on the ancient Chinese legend. Have they cast uh, Mushu yet? Uh, no, they haven't cast anyone else yet. This is the first piece of casting. The director, Nikki Caro, uh, is, to my knowledge, still attached. Um, uh, but it's out in 2019, so they'd best get a move on. Uh, two couple more very, very quick bits of news. Matthew Fawn may have found another project uh, to direct. It is a sci-fi movie called Courage, uh, a spec script from an executive producer on Stranger Things, which has been doing the rounds... Um, was bought by Fox early in the summer. Apparently, is a mind bender on uh, uh, in similar along similar lines to the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. Interesting. Apparently, apparently it is a cracker, a cracker of a script. If it was cracker, I'd be even more excited. Uh, that would be good. That would be good. Robbie Coltrane is a dude. Uh, yes, he is. Uh, and Hellboy, the Blood Queen, has a release date of January 2019. How do you feel about Hellboy, the Blood Queen? Because you're a big Guillermo fan, and you're a fan of the original Hellboys mm-hmm. so I mean is this is this I might um, I've said it before I'm sad that they're not getting to make Hellboy 3 mm. not as sad as I suspect as Guillermo del Toro is but some of the same people are involved in this movie like you know, producer Lloyd Levin's still involved and this has obviously got Mike Mignola's blessing I like Neil Marshall as a director I like David Harbour I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and see what happens but also, James, this is very exciting times because it is new Empire Week. It is. I'm holding in my hands the new issue of Empire. Uh, it's with, wrapped up like a Christmas present. It is, because it is not just a magazine this time around. You uh, you get uh, the regular issue of Empire. You get a 40th anniversary edition magazine. You get a separate magazine. It's all about Star Wars. You get an exclusive Lucasfilm art print. It's, it's got it all sorts of things. It's got a Porg, it's got BB-8, it's got Poe Dameron's helmet on it, it's got Kylo Ren's lightsaber hilt on it. It's, it's wow. a lovely exclusive art card. Amazing. I'm a big fan. That's great. Also, also... I'm opening feel, it right yeah, now. Feel the quality of that bag it's in. I mean, that's it's in a bag. It's in a bag. Give us a really thick, meaty bag. You could beat oh. someone to death with that bag. You shouldn't beat anyone I mean, to death with it. Yeah, and we wouldn't endorse that, but nevertheless, no. it's. It, I mean, it costs a lot of money. And you I'm can saying. get a you can get a couple of uh, character choices as well on the cover. So there is Daisy Ridley's Ray uh, on one cover. If you like the light side of the Force, and if you like the dark side of the Force, you can choose Adam Driver's Kylo Ren, who, as we all know, is the greatest villain in the history of the Star Wars franchise. Helena Horan. So Helena. Um, but what's extra specially clever is if you get the light side issue, then the feature has the light side people at the front. And if you get the dark side issue, then the dark side people are at the front. So there's actually a difference inside. No way. Yes. Why? Really? That's mm. genuinely blowing my mind. Uh, it's but it's not, it's not all about Star Wars, but the Star Wars stuff that is in there, you did. I did. You spoke to lots of people on Star Wars. Uh, who did you speak to? I spoke to uh, Andy Serkis. I spoke to um, uh, um, Adam Driver. I spoke to Donald Gleeson. I spoke to Daisy Ridley. I, sp- I spoke to everyone, let's be honest. I spoke to basically everyone. Um, yeah, it was good. So we split them up, cunningly as we have, into light side and dark side people. So we have a section on the heroes. We have a section on the villains. And each of them spoke to me about their characters and the film as a whole. Mm-hmm. And Daisy Ridley spoke in some or about Porgs, which is nice. Oh, well done. She likes a porg. Lovely porgs, lovely mm. porgs. Uh, uh, I re- highly recommend my interview with Donald Gleeson, a.k.a. General Hux, who for, and I shit you not, in the interview I had with him for the first 13 minutes of the interview, was being really funny with me, like really frosty. And I was like, I don't know what, I mean, this guy's really funny, he's a comedian, he's a really nice guy, I've met him before, I don't know what's going on, he was being really, really off. And then, <laughs> I don't know quite what I said, I think I mentioned something about the issue and that we were doing this thing with the covers and moving stuff around, and he kind of looked at me, and I asked another question, and he answered, but I could tell he wasn't re- like he wasn't thinking about the answer. And then he just stopped and went, "I made a complete balls of this. Uh, I thought we were here to talk about 
goodbye Christopher Robin and I've just been sitting here waiting for you to ask about Winnie the Pooh and the whole time he obviously thought I was being a real cheeky little bastard by asking about Star Wars when I should have been talking about Winnie the Pooh and that's why he was being so funny and after that he was lovely but it was a, it was a really odd experience. Do you mention that in your um, piece? I do mention it in the piece, yes, because <laughs> I couldn't get around it. It was it was pretty funny. That's hilarious. Um, um, yeah. No, he was right. a good guy after that, but I, I, it explains a lot. I remember you did that interview because I showed you, didn't I, you, just before you interviewed him, the yes. RTE sketch where he shits into a bottle. Where he poos yeah. in a bottle. And yeah. I had that in my head. I was like, this is this funny guy, and I was going to mention that, but he was being so funny about it. I was like, oh, God. It's all good. It's but, but he is, I mean, of course, he was doing a publicity tour for Goodbye Christopher Robin when I spoke to him. Uh-huh. And obviously no one had told him that this was a, a Star Wars interview. So, yeah. There Communication breakdown it's all can very mean exciting. only one thing. So there you go, yes, yes, incompetence. Uh, so, uh, we also have a feature on The Greatest Showman, the new Hugh Jackman musical. Uh, our fearless and glorious leader, Terry White, was on set of that uh, and spoke to Hugh Jackman for a long time about that as well. Uh, plus, we have a review of the year, which happens every year around this time in magazines. Uh, the year's not over yet, but it is a magazine world. Uh, so here we have, when we spoke to loads of people about their incredible 2017, we spoke to Nicole Kidman, Jordan Peele, the director of Get Out. We spoke to Tom Rudruff Jr. on creating the makeup for Pennywise. We spoke to Daphne Keane, who plays, of course, Laura in Logan. Patty Jenkins, the director of Wonder Woman. David Hasselhoff, who was in about 85 different films this we year. We spoke to Kevin, uh, Kenneth Branagh's moustache, which was very we exciting. We did, yes, we did. Uh, we spoke to Carol Hemming, who, who designed Poirot's Tash in Murder on the Orient Express. We spoke to Taika Waititi on his incredible year. Regina Hall, the star of Girls Trip of the Year's biggest comedy uh, we spoke to Elizabeth Moss as well and of course we also came up with Empire's top 20 films of the year which I believe is online right now isn't it Jimbo it is online our top one film of the year was Jordan Peele's Get Out Get Out Get Out Get Out Get Out Get Out, Get out. a film which I watched this very morning for the first time would you put it in your top 10 <laughs> Ooh, that's a difficult question I don't know if it, may, it might have made my top ten. I think the problem is there are many things Thus that, cementing its place for yes. at, the, at the top. Well, I don't, I didn't put the Florida Project in my top ten because I did my top ten before I saw it. But if I hadn't, then that would have been in there definitely. Uh, a guy on Twitter this week uh, said, "How can Get Out be Empire's film of the year when Empire only gave it four stars?" and the reason for that mm. is that Empire, what we do is when we put together our, our films of the year list, everybody who writes for Empire, and I mean everybody, puts together their personal top 10 list. And then it very simply becomes a numbers game. Your number one film of the year is given 10 points. Your number 10 film of the year is given one point, And it, therefore, it is uh, accounted for that way. So Get Out got loads of votes. It was yeah. my number two film of the year. Uh, therefore, nine points for Get Out. And uh, it just, just pipped... Blade Runner 2049 in fact I remember <laughs> I remember when Nick was putting together the votes and he was counting the votes and tallying in the uh, tallying the, uh, the, the, the totals yep. and I was going oh man this is so exciting come on get out come on because I, I love get out I but it was between not love Blade Runner it was between Blade Runner and La La Land for a long time and then, and then get, get out, out the, swept in from the back of the pack swooped in swooped uh, in it's a very good top 10 as well our top 20 is our top 20 on the website our top 20 will be on the website later today because I have to do it and obviously I'm here talking to you we'll uh, be finishing in by the very, time very people hear this it might be up yes okay and also our top 20 will form the basis of our discussion uh, for our review of the year podcast which will, will be up towards the end of December uh, what else is in the issue sorry I know this is the tough sell the, the hard sell business um, Greta Gerwig is this month's big interview and we also have an Oscars special uh, in which we focus on Darkest Hour Gary Oldman for Best Actor this is not our predictions these are people that we that we feel may be nominated in yes. certain categories uh, we also have Margot Robbie for Best Actress for I, Tonya Ridley Scott for All the Money in the World uh, we have Army Hammer for Best Supporting Actor for Call Me By Your Name and Hong Chow for uh, Downsizing she's fantastic in that film uh, and Martin McDonough for uh, be- talking about his best original screenplay for his stunning screenplay for uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Every movie is reviewed. The uh, review section at the back, uh, which is a great section, and the guy who edits that is uh, fantastic in bed. Um, oh, no, it's me. It's, Nick, oh, it's, Nick, me. Right? it's me. Oh, no, no he's, no, he's terrible in bed. The Empire Viewing Guide is Matt Reeves on War for the Planet of the Apes. Uh, we have the Empire Masterpiece I've always wanted to write. Evil Dead 2. Yes. The third best Evil Dead film. <laughs> 
Sample quote, you can shove your subtext up your arse. So do enjoy reading that one. Uh, we have John Waltz talking about Spider-Man Homecoming. We have Terry Gilliam on his illustrious career. We have Frank Grillo. That was a lot of fun on Best Times, Worst of Times. Uh, the story of the shot is Blade Runner. Uh, there's well, something else that's, that's quite important. Oh, yes, William Friedkin talking about Sorcerer and his 40th anniversary. That's a great film. And uh, and then, of course, there's the news section as well. Uh, I don't edit that, though, so whatever. So who cares? Who cares? Is this not the first news news section of our very own John Nugent. Yeah, but who cares? Who cares? I don't edit it. Yeah, you make a fair point. Yeah, but yeah, there's lots of great stuff inside the the issue. Uh, we have Chris Hemsworth and 12 Strong. We have an early look at Early Man. And Dan Stevens is this month's pint of milk. And hey, if you like Dan Stevens' interviews, you've come to the right place because he is this week's special guest. Uh, he is, of course... Welcome to the pod. He's been on several times before. He is very much our spirit animal, former spirit animal. I say we have to keep the position open in case other people want to occupy it. He's a star of The Guest, Downton Abbey. Had a cracking year this year with Beauty and the Beast and Colossal, which came so close to my top ten. Uh, and he's having a great time this week as Charles Dickens struggling to write A Christmas Carol in The Man Who Invented Christmas. And when he came to London recently, we sent Helen along to have a natter with him. Uh, and I particularly like the bit, because I've already edited this this interview, uh, where Helen drops some French history knowledge bombs on him out of nowhere. She, because because Helen. She Helen's playing <laughs> she, France to she him. She Helen's playing France to him. Excellent. So do enjoy that. Um, uh, here's Dan Stevens talking to Helen. Welcome, Dan Stevens. Uh, here to talk about the man who invented Christmas. Yes. Now, that sounds like a really big claim, but I have to say that the film kind of backs it up. Well, thanks. I Yes, it's a, slight, it's a sort of deliberately provocative title, really, because <laughs> everyone knows that Santa invented Christmas. But um, I hadn't really appreciated quite what went into the Christmas, uh, Christmas Carol and, yeah. and just everything that sort of boils into this iconic work of literature and really just sort of looking at the man who, you know, and, and considering Dickens in a way that I hadn't yeah. been encouraged to growing up. You're, you're really encouraged to sort of look at the work and look at these great works of literature and the, and the bearded man on the sort of frontispiece. And, and uh, I, I hadn't really associated him with those younger beardless years. <laughs> um, and there was a time where he didn't have a beard, uh, but very impressive chops and quite wild, long sort of Gene Wilder hair. And it was really exciting to me to sort of see this this script that presented this man and this this work and this whole period really in a in a more irreverent light. Mm. And that was exact. I was just really up for that. I, you know, it's funny what catches your imagination at whatever time. But whatever I was eating or drinking that week, <laughs> it sort of you know put me in a mindset where I was like, oh, this is really fun. This is really playful and yeah. silly and. You know, it had a lot of elements that I love about a good, a good holiday film. I suppose. Yeah. So, were you eating a lot of figgy pudding, presumably? Probably. Like yeah, an undigested been, right? crumb of cheese or something, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> um, but the, the the hair thing is interesting, actually, because that was my initial reaction to but the film as well. It was, it's like, whoa, well, the hair. Yeah, it's like, well, where, you know, where, where's the gigantic beard, or at least enormous sideburns? Well, what know? we did was give John Dickens, Dickens' father, mm-hmm. played by Jonathan Price, we kind of gave him the Dickens look even though that is apparently historically inaccurate that right. John Dickens didn't have a beard I was told by oh, an no. academic oh. the other day but nonetheless <laughs> we wanted to sort of give the impression that you know his father did he, he cast a very very big impression on him mm-hmm. and um, I think there was there was much about his father that he aspired to and much that he uh, he rejected and um, anyway so yes the the iconic Dickens was sort of you know, I, I wanted to take him down off the shelf and dust him off a bit, and 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 give him a bit more, a bit more energy than you're used to thinking mm. of a sort of mid-Victorian great author. Um, you know, yeah. and actually just sort of think about well, he was a very very manic guy who, you know, by all accounts was quite uh, was was sort of frenetic and depressive. And the great Miriam Margulies, who uh, yeah. plays our housekeeper in the in the film, and it was wonderful to have her and Simon Callow along I was for the say, ride. You've you got know, two, two enormous Dickens scholars there, The right? biggest Dickens nuts in the world. I mean, <laughs> Simon Callow basically is Dickens. And uh, Miri Margulies bowled up to me on set the first day and said, well, of course you know he was bipolar. And uh, <laughs> I didn't, and I'm not sure if I will go along with that, but I, I can definitely... I can definitely see why she why she would say that, and yeah. I think you know she she would know. Um, 
And that was interesting. I mean, I, I, I was already well into him by, by that point, but there's definitely, you know, discovering the shades and the light and the dark, which is in Christmas Carol and which is in yeah. so much of his other work. And just sort of, just to, to, to look to animate that really and to approach one of these so-called period pieces with a, with a, with a fresh, mm. you know, set of, I don't know what, a fresh set of something, <laughs> tools or underpants or something but you know <laughs> just so, uh, something that gave a different approach to to that kind of piece yeah that would give it a different energy and and um yeah you know a bit a bit irreverent but not uh not i hope disrespectful no I, do, I don't think so at all um but i think the 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 energy thing is is interesting because i think that does come across first of all but also you have a sense of dickens as a public figure um, and as a guy who's under pressure to follow up those promising first albums. Yeah, we no, he's, he is. He's a bit, bit of a rock star and he's at that sort of difficult third album type stage. Exactly. I mean, he's a few books yeah. beyond that, but <laughs> but he's had a, a huge success with Oliver Twist. Pickwick mm. Papers is massive. He's gone over to America, had a very, very successful reading tour. He's published the last three books he published, Barnaby Rudge, American Notes and Martin Chuzzlewit, which I will completely forgive you for not having read yeah i skipped that one it's totally fine and you know you've missed a bit but not much and and i think he would probably go along with that and he was sort of frustrated by that and uh yeah he had he had ambitions and and also a very very broad social conscience that he was very very keen to sort of you know continue to work into his his writing and Mm. you know kept seeing you know great ills at large in in the society around him and um you know, all of these things sort of boiled into uh, the pudding of, of A Christmas Carol. Plus, he had four kids with one on the way. Mounting debts was kind of overspending <laughs> with his interior decor. Yes. And, um, you know, so all of these things kind of make their way into our into our little tale. Mm. Um, and is also, you know, it, it's very, very funny and sort of silly and playful. And then very dark and depressive and it's mm. sort of a bit like Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a bit but, of a dark and depressive... For, for and, some people. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Take on Christmas. Um, I mean, and you, and, and he does have, you know, the, the characters literally come to life around him. Yeah. Um, in, in a slightly less... Um, like lunatic way than I expected reading the synopsis. I have to say, I thought, oh, he's literally going to be ranting and raving in the street, which is not quite what happens. The, you not know. quite, although pretty close um and it's pretty well documented by his his daughter who you know wrote in her diaries i think or in some letters somewhere that she would go and find her dad you know making these weird noises and faces in the mirror in his study and really conjuring actually conjuring these characters physicalizing wow. and, and performing them to himself and kind of it wasn't until he could actualize them in that in that study that he could really put them down on the page and oh, play wow. with them and that was so fantastic because you know, films about writers, a bit like films about painters. It's like nobody really wants to see a man daubing a canvas, really. And nobody really wants to see a man getting ink all over a page. I mean, we have a bit of that, but yeah. more often than not, he's sat at his desk, not able to write. And, and uh, so it's really about, about that, the, you know, the manifestation of these characters, the wrestling with them and, you know, running up against writer's block. And, and I think there's as much about the, the universal artistic and creative process as there is about about christmas or about mm. dickens in this really it's about you know a, a very fired up man who who you know maybe maybe the wrong fire is burning in his head <laughs> and that is causing him some headaches <laughs> and and i mean the, the person playing scrooge here is christopher Plummer, which is which has got to be a treat I it imagine. was pretty awesome um yeah i mean he was just just a real delight to work with and so witty and sparkly and funny and playful and all of that is in his Scrooge mm. and all of that is is necessary for the dynamic that you get between Dickens and Scrooge and the idea that he you know because there is a lot of Dickens in Scrooge I think that's important yeah. to remember um, as well as a number of other characters that he would see around but there's something about the sort of you know the meanness of the human spirit that mm. he saw um, that he you know he sort of distilled into this incredible uh, archetype of greed, you know, that, yeah. that transcended even the book, you know, the, the way that Scrooge has sort of taken taken flight um, into our culture. And mm. uh, yeah, Plummer was just so playful and, and um, you know, but also so the, the pathos that he brings at the end, you know, seeing seeing Plummer in his grave 
having just turned 87 on our oh set. Gosh. Um, and he's also very claustrophobic. Oh, no. And so that scene towards the end, yes. spoiler alert. Um, I mean, people have hopefully know the story of A Christmas Carol. Right. So, uh, you know. You know. <laughs> not, not spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> there's a scene towards the end where Plummer's in, his, in a grave. Let's yeah. put it that way. And the walls are closing in. And the only way they could shoot it was, was to... Was to do put that. plumber in a grave. I mean, it wasn't an actual gravestone, yeah. but it was, you know, oh, a set-up environment. But still, he was, he was, you know, for that shot, he's left alone in that, you know, encroaching box. And there's something terrifying about about the, uh, yeah, the sort of genuine fear oh, in goodness. in his eyes. Yeah. So yeah. You, just to be clear, for this film, we tortured Christopher. You tortured international. <laughs> An 87-year-old man. 87-year-old Christopher Plummer. <laughs> Yeah, but it was worth it. It was worth. <laughs> it's really, um, it's really strange to consider the this, the place that a Christmas Carol holds in our culture because it seems to have had an impact beyond almost anything I can think of in terms of you know like once a year for for one or two months it's everywhere. Yeah, one hundred and seventy years later. Yeah, I can't think of another work of art mm. that that has had that lasting effect and so many spins on it i mean if you turn on one of those christmas movie channels which you probably shouldn't but if you did you'd find <laughs> is, like, there a, is there a channel devoted to christmas movies there are so many oh. you have no idea you, you, you're based in america now, aren't you? i am we've right. just only just got cable though so okay, I, this will be my I mean, first christmas with cable so i'll let you know how that I goes assume they have like 200 channels devoted <laughs> 200 to christmas, christmas channels um yeah, and there are many, many iterations of this. And, and, and you know, again, like how the, the character of Scrooge has transcended the book. Um, and even, you know, a great, great holiday movie like It's a Wonderful Life yeah. is Frank Capra's answer to Dickens. It's, it's, you know, a man is shown what the world would be like had he not lived and, and mm. receives the great benevolence of those around him. It is, it's Scrooge in reverse, you know. And um, it's, yeah, if you if you scratch very lightly, it's it's there in a number of very, very important tales i think mm -hmm. but of its time it was so so weird uh, you know the idea of a christmas book of a, of a time traveling book of a, a, a book where you know supernatural elements transform a truly villainous you know or, yeah. a sort of archetypal bad guy bad character into a good one so mm -hmm. rapidly not really done, not really heard of. I mean, we sort of take it for granted now, this sort of redemption story and the happy ending and this sort of, oh, he's lovely now. <laughs> but at the time, you know, people were used to seeing their villains as villains and yes. their heroes as heroes and, the, and the fool as yeah. the fool. And, and, you know, historically, dramatic, dramatically, um, this was how it had been. And, and, you know, and the novel itself wasn't that old as a, as a, yeah. as a thing. Well, le hundred Less than a hundred so? years, yeah. you know. Um, and so... Yeah, it was. It was. There's so many elements to Christmas Carol that we we sort of take for granted. Mm. And we're like, oh, Christmas. Yeah, it's about it's about Scrooge and Tiny mm. Tim and you know the Cratchits and the Fezziwigs and you know everybody. Fezziwigs is like the ultimate Christmas. It's like the sort of pin-up Christmas. Everybody wants to have a Christmas like the Fezziwigs. But uh, again, at the time, it was just like, sorry, what are you doing? You're writing a <laughs> Christmas book about what you know? And or, you know, it was just such a bizarre idea. Yeah. Um, and so the man who invented it the man who wrote it i think must have been a bit bonkers yeah that, that is the line that, that surprised me most in the film all these people going why would you want why would you write a christmas story yeah. that's so bizarre yeah. whereas nowadays i feel like everyone's like yeah write a christmas story. Write a christmas once story. a year you'll yeah. get a check it's brilliant, <laughs> you know. um uh, so what does christmas look like for you what are your what are your traditions for christmas uh well the muppet christmas carol features very strongly of course, of course. christmas eve uh very firm tradition um if i'm in this country i'll often we big group of friends who I've known since childhood will get together and well it used to be in the early days sort of you know you'd go to the pub and get drunk sure. on Christmas Eve and then as we got older it was sort of like have a nice you know Christmas dinner all together the day before we go to our families mm -hmm. now it's like we you know get together with all our kids and you know it's just getting bigger and bigger as a as a thing um but that's a really lovely tradition mm -hmm. you know but yeah it's pretty you know I guess a sort of traditional looking thing lots of board games and puzzles and classic movies and um and Christmas movies, of course. Well, Christmas, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, no, I want to ask you about a couple of other bits of work you've been doing recently or you have coming up. Um, Beauty and the Beast, obviously one of the biggest films of the year. And I have to say, I uh, read an article just last night and I thought, I have to ask you about this. It's arguing... Um, this article argues that Bell should have chosen Gaston 
And it, and it presents, I have to say, a compelling case. So I'm going to put this, this to you now. Okay. So I might agree with it. Gaston, uh, yeah. strong muscles, good hunter, which is important in sort well, of 18th century France. Beast has strong muscles and is probably a better hunter. Ah, but he's Carry not a beast anymore, is he, you know? Well. Yeah, true. Um, he's ready to commit. He wants kids and has lots of friends. He's very popular down the pub. Right. And, and has a great singing voice. Uh, the beast is moody, tries to kidnap your dad and lock him up forever, will yell at you for looking at a flower... Yeah. Has no friends. He only pe- hangs out with people he pays. Doesn't have a job. Doesn't know how to eat with a spoon. Yeah, he's got very unconventional soup eating methods, hasn't mm. he? Mind you, Gaston pays off a few people down the pub. I That's think there's a bit true. of bit of bought uh, bought love there, and is also fairly temperamental, isn't he? He's. I mean, he does, There is the whole murder thing, I suppose. The whole murder thing. Yeah, the but whole almost killing Maurice thing <laughs> in a sort of flash of anger. Yeah. Um, Post-traumatic stress, I think, is probably features quite heavily on Gaston's. Well, now that comes into my ailments. next point. Go on. Um, so, if we're if we're if we're citing this historically, presumably yeah. Gaston's been fighting in a war, presumably in France in the 18th century. That's the Seven Years' War. So that puts it around the 1860s. Very good. Presumably, <laughs> yeah. um, which means Belle and the, and the Prince yeah. have only about 20 years before they both get their heads chopped off, don't they? I I see what you're saying. Um, yeah. So. So what's the lesson? Enjoy it while it lasts? I mean, or, I yeah. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, escape to some other country? Uh, yeah. Oh, I don't think she would have been very happy with Gaston. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I'm I think sure, you're probably I'm right. I'm not sure anybody would be. Maybe LeFou. Maybe LeFou. No, they do seem like, especially a in this incarnation, in a match made in heaven. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, how how did the Dickensian frock coats compare to the... To the beast's various get-ups. <laughs> to the to the muscle, the CGI muscle the CGI suit on muscle stilts. <laughs> uh, it was a lot more comfortable, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was. Uh, they were very, uh, very nice, very good. Um, no, I didn't. I don't miss those stilts at all. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you've got you know an extra sort of you know if you ever have to go off and join the circus. Yeah, or change that. a light bulb. Change a light bulb. Very yeah. useful. Yeah, super, very useful. Super ready to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing that you've got coming up um, is Apostle. Now we talked yes. to Gareth Evans recently, and he what was, did he have to say? I mean, he didn't say anything very specific. I'll be honest. But okay. He was, he was very excited about you in it. He thought you were great. Good. You'll be glad to know. I loved working with him. Yeah. Uh, Apostle. Yeah. What can I say about that? It's my Brexit movie. <laughs> um, that's about as much as I'm going to say right now. I heard ultraviolent was was the other thing. As I mentioned. said, it's my Brexit movie. <laughs> <laughs> but was it was it um, was it let's let's think physically arduous for you? Yes, yeah. yeah. It was a very it was a tough shoot, but in the in the best kind of way. Like it, I, I knew that working with Gareth was going to be a physical challenge, even though it's not a it's not a kung fu movie. It's not. Uh, it's not the Raid 3 uh, as much as I wanted it to be. Um, <laughs> and I kept trying to persuade him to, to work in some... Uh, there are, there's definitely some action in it and there's yeah. definitely some violence. Um, and uh, I think he is a phenomenal filmmaker. He really is yeah. the Welsh Tarantino. You know, he, he grew up in Hirwain in the valleys of South Wales, yeah. worked in the local video store, <laughs> obsessed with you know Japanese and Korean cinema. There's nothing that man doesn't know. He has the most obscene collection of vhs let alone and blu-ray i mean he's just incredible he he tries um, to hide some of it from from his wife when he gets new yeah oh yeah yeah he has like secret cupboards with like because he's got sort of four different copies of enter the dragon he's got it on like (laughs) vhs laser disc dvd and blu-ray i don't know why you need that but but gareth evans does and um (laughs) no but he is he's the loveliest guy and he's just such a really really passionate filmmaker and i'm very i'm very very excited to see that film it was a really fun uh it was a fun gang michael sheen and uh bill milner lucy boynton uh who else do we have there's some great uh some great people involved and um yeah just a lovely a lovely team behind it as well and i loved working in wales and uh yeah we're still we're talking about other other projects uh already and in fact we were talking about a different project when we first met which still hasn't happened that in the meantime, he said, "Oh, I've got this other idea. Do you fancy doing this?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll do. I'll do anything you say." And uh, amazing. So we came up with that. Yeah, awesome. So I hope you enjoy it. Oh, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure we will. We have <laughs> everything else he's done. And Legion season two. Yes, in the thick of that right now. Wow. In fact, I'm back to work on Monday morning. On, yeah, finishing that. So yeah. Um, Can we expect something even weirder? I hope so. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you.
Okay, so that was Dan Stevens on The Man Who Invented Christmas, and now it's time to have a very brief reviews section. Uh, why is it brief, Jimbo? It is brief because I have seen none of the films out this week. Yeah. And due to my lurgy, I haven't seen Michael Haneke's happy end. So, Though I hear it has a happy ending. Uh, it's Michael Haneke. It's deeply, deeply unlikely to have a happy ending. I imagine it is as miserable and misanthropic as all of Michael Haneke's movies. Merry Christmas. Lol. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas. But yes, Christmas is starting and the man who invented Christmas is is with us. And this does, as you heard, star Dan Stevens as Charles Dickens, a younger, handsome, more attractive Charles Dickens than I had in my head, that's for sure. Uh, during the writing of A Christmas Carol, uh, he's going through some stuff in his life. He's going through a bout of writer's block and along to help him out of this malaise is uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, played by Christopher Plummer, which helps him uh, come to terms with breaking that difficult third act <laughs> in in A Christmas Carol. And this movie is pretty much exactly like you would imagine. It was shot, relatively speaking, on a shoestring. I, I found out this week that it was shot on the same sets as Penny Dreadful. So was it really? when Penny Dreadful was shut down or was, wasn't was using the sets, the man who invented Christmas scuttled in, shot some stuff, and off they went. I think Penny Dreadful knew about it. I don't think they just... <laughs> well, like, in between set-ups, yeah. they just snuck in, yeah. like, in a bowfinger kind of capacity. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Dan Stevens has no idea he was in this film. <laughs> it's just a documentary for him. Um, but it's, it's quite stuffy in parts, but uh, it's, got a, it's got a lovely charm to it, a nice Christmassy charm, because obviously the Christmas was a very, very different commodity pre-Christmas Carol and post-Christmas Carol and this captures that, that, that moment in time when things like Christmas trees were fresh, fresh in people's minds and mm. uh, the idea of the, the traditional Christmas tree that we have now was very, very new to people. Um, it's a lot of fun at times. It doesn't shy away from the darkness of Dickens. Dickens is always dark. Uh, Christmas Carol is dark, certainly. I didn't even mention this week that Stephen Knight and Tom Hardy are going to team up on a new TV version of for A Christmas Beeb. Carol for the BBC, which is going to be terrifying, I imagine. <laughs> um, if you want to see Dickens done by the guys who did Picky Blinders, then God help you, it's going to be terrifying. Uh, but this movie is three stars. We gave it three stars, and it is absolutely three stars, but it's a lot of fun watching Dan Stevens uh, interact with Christopher Plummer. What would be your Christmas dribble bill? Let's not get into that right now because we have three minutes to go. But we'll we'll do we'll do this towards the end. <laughs> Fine. Uh, we'll do this towards the end of the year. But probably you know. But uh, it's got to be Die Hard, right? Die Hard, Scrooged, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Yeah, I wouldn't watch that. That's an amazing film. Uh, and uh, Die Hard again. Die Hard Two. Die Hard Two. Die Hard two. Yeah. There we go. Uh, let me move on to Wonder, which is a, the story of a young boy called Augie, played by Jacob Tremblay, who was born with severe facial deformity, but his, he is full of life and bounce and, op- and optimism, and he likes to walk around in, a, in an astronaut's helmet. And it's all very, very cute, and his parents are played by uh, Julia Roberts and Owen Wilson. Uh, and then Augie has to go to big school, fifth grade, I believe is what they call it in the States. He had to go to big school, and there he finds that his deformity makes him the target of bullying, and ridicule from his fellow students. And uh, uh, this is a movie that could have got potentially very, very mawkish very, very quickly. But the director, Stephen Chabowski, I uh, hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who did The Perks of Being a Wallflower, knows how to sidestep cliche, I think. It was obviously, there are moments in a story like this that embrace cliche and to tear jerking effect. But also, he can he can. He can see cliche coming. He can see convention coming, and just neatly swerve around at the last minute. And he does so. One of the reasons, one of the things he does, is he focuses on the parents as well. Mm. So you get a, you get to really know Augie, uh, played brilliantly by Jacob Tremblay. That kid is a real deal, believe me. Uh, but you also get to know the the trials and tribulations, I would say, and what what his parents are going through as well. So there are moments in the film that focus on them from their point of view, rather than necessarily Augie's point of view. But uh, very well acted all round. It's been a big hit in the states. And I can see why, because it's a real crowd-pleaser of a movie. It's going to be a lot of sobbing, a lot of sniffling at the end of uh, screenings of this. And there's even talk that it may, it may, because of its commercial success, become a bit of a dark horse in the Oscar race. Jacob Tremblay, who we will all see next year in The Predator. Yes, we will. Okay, so uh, three stars then for Wonder, which is, of course, as as I say, a recommendation. Now, James and I haven't seen Happy End, but we did give it four stars. Ian Fear gave it four stars. The review is also in the new issue of Empire. Uh, it says, starts with, says, it features the greatest performance by a hamster ever depicted on screen. <laughs> so, right away, Hanukkah's got you by the Jaffas. Uh, and then at, at the... <laughs> 
it ends. Uh, it is perhaps not top-notch Hanukkah, but Happy End is an intermittently gripping film about loveless people in a joyless world. So Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> uh, they could all do a lot worse to go on holiday with the characters from Paddington 2. And the review actually ends with, as you might expect, the notion of a happy end and a Hanukkah first is impossible. I now want to see a Michael Hanukkah advent calendar. <laughs> That's what I want to see. A Sadvent calendar, more like. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week, should the gods and my health permit it, of course. Well, we'll be joined by the double trouble that is the Franco brothers. Yes, James and Dave Franco, stars and, in James's case, director of The Disaster Artist, uh, which is a movie based on the making of Tommy Wiseau's The Room, otherwise known as possibly the worst movie ever made. The Room, not The Disaster Artist, which is very good. Uh, anyway, that's out next week. The interview is next week as well. And until that auspicious occasion, it's goodbye from James. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to cough blood into a hanky, look a little bit worried by it, cover it up from everybody I know, and then die nobly around the end of the second act. That was a Hanukkah-esque ending to the podcast. <laughs> it was, wasn't well it? Done. So there you go. Here's, the, uh, here's this podcast. Happy end. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.